Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the LSAT, the pros and cons, as well as our experiences and opinions of using the standardized test for the law school application process. The idea for this episode all came from a vote by the American Bar Association Council, where they voted to eliminate the LSAT as an admissions requirement. However, the vote was overturned in February, 2023 by the House of Delegates, but we wanted to discuss here what are the arguments to keep the LSAT? What are the arguments to remove it? And so starting with the reasons why LSAC is, you know, (laughs) voting or promoting to keep the LSAT as a requirement, but also some schools are wanting to keep it, um, is because it has been shown to be a good predictor of first-year law school grades. So the correlation is about 0.36. For anyone who knows statistics, this is actually a weak correlation. However, the correlation has been consistent in the sense that every year the LSAT conducts a study to see if the LSAT has good predictive validity. And every year it's been shown to be a decent (laughs) predictor of law school grades, depending on how you want to qualify it based on the strength of the correlation. Compared to the undergrad GPA. Yes. Um, the undergraduate GPA has been shown every single year to be um, not strong as a predictor. The correlation varies, of course, from one study to the next. Um, and I think probably one of the main reasons that we can see this variation is also because just undergraduate programs and grading and, expect- and expectations can differ. That's one thing that we can see just with Ontario schools for anyone applying from Ontario where uh, to convert your grades, your, your GPA for the, to the 4.0 scale, it really depends on the school that you're actually attending. For certain schools, they're going to be more lenient. Let's say an A can give you a 4.0 versus in some schools, it's only an A+. And also depending on uh, if you go by percentage, where they draw those boundaries as well. And I think that like, you know, something that I think about too is like when I did my undergraduate education, I did a specialist uh, in English literature at the University of Toronto. And specialist, I believe, is like one of those special programs that U of T really celebrates. And it, basically what it means is it allows you to do the overwhelming majority, I think like 90 to 95 percent of your entire uh, time there on very specific courses in one category. So for instance, for me, I was really, really into English literature and literary studies. So basically all I did was literary studies. And of course, I was really, really, really good at it, right? Because that was something that I had a lot of experience in, something that I worked at a lot. Um, But I can understand that, for instance, people who want to go into university learning a wide array of things, they wanted to multiple majors or multiple minors, It can be such the case that your GPA isn't near perfect or perfect, right? But at the same time, by you taking that kind of diverse course, um, uh, taking on those kinds of courses, it allows you to develop the kinds of soft skills needed to do well on an LSAT or perhaps even to do better in law school. Exactly. I think the main reason probably for the fact that undergraduate GPA isn't as good of a predictor is the fact that people can come from all sorts of programs. They can develop all sorts of different skill sets. And if these skill sets do not apply directly to law school, 
then of course it's possible that they wouldn't be as successful in the first year, right? So it's almost like comparing apples and oranges. The LSAT was designed specifically to test skills that we would expect lawyers to have versus your undergraduate GPA. It shows your ability to, of course, be successful in testing, but knowing that law school tests entirely differently than any other undergraduate program and that it's so different could explain kind of the discrepancy. So I think as much as it can be an argument to keep the LSAT, it can also just be an argument that we need to rely on something else than just grades. And so maybe potentially other exams to test skills, to test personality. Something I've been thinking about too is when I was doing English literature, the overwhelming means of testing uh, was through writing essays. So for instance, I know that when I did the LSAT and the GRE, the essay writing section, I didn't even have to study for that. I was so confident coming in. But when I was writing the LSAT, and I wrote the LSAT just one time about five years ago, uh, and this was still when it was uh, paper, paper copy, I made one mistake transferring my answers onto the Scantron, onto the sheet that they you know, used to fill the answers in. And it completely mentally, oh my gosh, it, it completely led me astray. I was so nervous. And it took me a long time to properly finish that section because I was just not used to taking tests in that kind of medium. So I'm thinking a lot about the fact that, you know, for folks who, um, and I know in previous episodes we say, you know, we recommend you take reading and analytical courses and programs, uh, whether that's like philosophy or literary studies or poli sci, but even for folks who do STEM subjects, and I know that you do multiple choice testing quite a bit in in those kinds of um, fields. I, I think a lot about how the LSAT is really like a very specific means of testing. Um, but what was your experience with psychology in college? Um, with psychology, I would say it was a mix of both. I had some courses, mainly introductory courses. They were multiple choice. And then as you went on into the more advanced courses, topic specific, they weren't covering, let's say, all areas of psychology very quickly, but we're focusing on one specific area, then that's usually when you would go into the essays or the papers or those types of examinations. Or even I had some exams that were long answers where we had to develop a way of researching a specific topic and then giving kind of an, an idea of what the results may look like based on previous literature and different things like that. So I feel like it kind of it was good in the sense that I had a variety of different exams and different ways of being tested. It wasn't strictly just multiple choice or just short answer, just essays. Something else, too, that I think about is how in North America, um, law school is always a um, graduate or professional degree. And what we, what we mean by that is you are required to do some kind of, you know, three to five year uh undergraduate program in order to in order to pursue this kind of line of study in other countries that's not the case at all so for instance I know that in the UK um, law school is a six-year program but you start at it in your bachelor's but something that I think about in terms of arguments to keep it is that it is a specific means of studying and test taking that gets you into this new kind of mindset into this new kind of study Oh, definitely, definitely. Although, 
there there is also the debate as to whether it's actually mimicking the way law school will be teaching us enough yes or if it's kind of its own separate entity but yeah other than it being a good predictor relatively good predictor of your grades in your first year of law school another reason why some people have been promoting and kind of arguing to keep the LSAT is the fact that it actually also has a positive relationship a moderate positive relationship um, with the bar passage rate so this was actually a study conducted by the University of Denver Law School so we're looking at of course American results Um, but so there seems to be a correlation between the actual score that you got on the LSAT and your likelihood of passing the bar. So that's a, another another argument that's being used. And then finally, there is this fear that if we eliminate the LSAT, that the admissions process is going to rely more heavily on other factors, like the reputation of someone's undergraduate school, the GPA, of course, And this would actually increase bias and would lead to benefiting potentially high-income students because a lot of the time schools that have a greater reputation are also more expensive. We see that a lot in the U.S., but we see that even here in Canada with us, just for example, with U of T. It does have a very strong reputation as a law school, and it is a lot more expensive than other law schools across the country. A hundred percent. And, you know, this idea of not wanting to increase Um, bias in other elements of the application process that is one of the uh, perhaps uh, turned most turned to arguments when it comes to standardized testing right is that you have some kind of quote-unquote objective um, means of allowing folks from all sorts of different backgrounds to you know prove their ability exactly but interestingly enough this bias yes argument is also used as one to remove yes. DLSAT and to make the test at least optional. A hundred percent. Right? Because so as much as we're saying that, oh, relying more on reputation and factors like that will more strongly benefit high income students. There's also the argument that high income students are benefited by the fact that they have an advantage on the LSAT yes. because they can pay for prep courses, they can pay for tutors. All those books as well, all those previous exams. Exactly, exactly. So they have the money to access all of these resources to give them an advantage in terms of preparing for the LSAT. And obviously, you know, it's recommended you don't take your LSAT too, too many times, but it's, it's an expensive standardized test, right? You know, a lot of these prep courses and tutors and, uh, you know, textbooks and booklets and everything like that, they come out costing three to four figures. The LSAT, to take that, that's three figures, you know, on the one time. So if you want to take it again and again and again, you're looking at this process costing you quite a hefty amount of money. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of one of those things, right, where when it comes to the arguments of standardized testing taking out uh, perhaps some of the other biases or, or privileges that s- certain students may have, you know, I think, I think there, that same kind of evidence can be used to suggest why wealthier students often still have the advantage, even when writing the LSAT. Exactly. And unfortunately, I feel like for any standardized test to not have that inherent bias, I feel like it would have to be a test that doesn't rely on learning or knowledge yes but relies on skills that you possess naturally or that you can work on in another way yes so let's say personality or different soft skills you don't necessarily 
need money to develop those versus a lot of the times if you're having a test that's testing your knowledge, you're always going to have tutors and resources and stuff like that that are eventually going to be built and yes. that are going that are not going to be offered for free. Yes. So I guess it would be twofold. <laughs> Either you rely on those tests that um, you don't have the option to pay to potentially get a better score or you make resources free. Yes, exactly. And, 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 you know, this is one of those things why you go on to, for instance, the U of T um, JD application website or you go to many other uh, law school application you know, websites and they'll always say they'll have some kind of sentence like this, which is, you know, our selection committee takes a quote unquote like holistic approach. And what that means is they take into account uh, personal statements and essays. They take into account uh, your GPA, they take into account your work experience if you are a you know mature student or you have a couple of years of working under your belt. And, and then, of course, they take that standardized test into consideration as well. I'll personally just say, you know, I did not do very well on the LSAT. I wrote it once. I found it to be a very difficult experience. I'm someone that I think I'm quite good at standardized testing, but I just let all of the pressure and mental uh, difficulties get to me. And I really didn't want to rewrite the LSAT, to be honest. So I told myself, you know, I'm going to take this score, which I would consider to be quite uh, scraping the bottom of what is needed for a lot of law schools. And I'm going to use my other uh, assets uh, to to hopefully bump up my application. But I found the LSAT to be truly a dreadful experience. No, for sure. And, and the one thing I find difficult with the holistic approach, at least from discussions I've had with other people, is that there's always that voice in the back of your mind questioning how holistic is it actually. They're saying this, but there's no proof or data or anything it's quite a buzzword right like there's never any explanation I mean to some extent I don't know if they owe you know the logistics but there's very little description elaborating upon what holistic exactly so we don't know what the internal process is we don't know potentially individual biases that the admissions committee might have and so I feel like for some people and, and even myself I fell into that trap that there's always that fear of okay they're saying it's holistic but how holistic is it actually if they see my LSAT score and it's not higher in, in that kind of range, is are they actually going to put that aside and look at everything else I have to offer? Or will it still weigh heavily in, in the back of their minds, even if it's unconscious, because we do have a lot of unconscious biases. I'm not saying that they're purposefully lying to students or even that this is happening to begin with like this is just all (laughs) hypothetical again yes and obviously this is all just our opinions and we're just having a conversation about it exactly exactly but there is that that wonder as to you know what's the actual weight that they're giving to all of these factors because of course they're not giving a percentage (laughs) they're not like okay 20 percent is the LSAT 10 percent is the GPA let's say 70 percent is the rest there's no kind of cut off like that yeah no I know a hundred percent and and again you know that's why a lot of people like doing multiple choice testing a lot of people like doing testing where there is a concrete yes or no or a concrete uh you know 80 means good or uh you know 120 to 140 means bad or something like that right so that at least when you get that score you go do I have to write it again or can I use other elements uh, to improve my application or can I actually just use this standardized test to improve the other elements of my application? That could be the case as well. Exactly. That's true. And I think that's why also we see that when 
there's the argument to remove the LSAT, it's always replacing it with some sort of other standardized test. Yes. Like, for example, recently, um, there's been a test that's been approved by the American Bar Association called JD Next. Yes. And that's been uh, used at least in, at the University of Arizona. Right now, they're using that as um, an option for admission. So either individuals write the LSAT or the GRE or this new test, the JD Next. So it seems like... There's no greater discussion in terms of standardized tests themselves and yes. their merit mm -hmm. and more so which standardized test would be the best one. A hundred percent. So, for instance, Sarah just mentioned the GRE and the GRE in the United States is now becoming, I would say, um, the second, if not rivaling, uh, the first uh, means of standardized testing to get into law school. Simply because the GRE is required for any kind of graduate schooling. So typically in the States, when students are finishing up their undergrad and they're thinking, okay, I'm not sure if I want to apply to law school or some kind of graduate, you know, master's or doctoral program. If I have to write a standardized test, maybe it'd be great if I could just write one instead of multiple. And the GRE is actually, I would say, quite different from the LSAT in that the LSAT is quite, uh, quite centered around verbal and logic games. So for instance, it's like the best way I can say it is there's a lot of words in the LSAT, right? There's a lot of reading and analyzing words, but there's an entire section in the GRE on math. So for instance, doing trigonometry, doing um, certain combinations and permutations, doing certain algebraic, uh, you know, problem sets, right? That is not found in the LSAT at all. Um, and so, I mean, I mean, I did do the GRE as well, but let me tell you, I did really terribly in the math section. And I actually did some um, casual reading, and I found that a lot of the really great American law schools, you know, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, what have you, they require actually a really high section for the math portion as well. Equivalent to the section where you're tested on vocabulary and logic and, you know, filling in the blanks and stuff like that. And so I thought to myself, oh my goodness, if I were to apply to the States, I'll be real, I think I would rather take the LSAT because I think I can self-study to boost my logic game scores versus relearning probability or relearning trigonometry. <laughs> I think that's too far out for me anymore. I'm surprised, actually, that they require such a, hard, uh, a high score because... From, and this is just from friends that have applied to masters and PhDs. So again, case, <laughs> case by case, not, yes. not a scientific empirical data or anything like that. But I've noticed that for them, at least, if they're applying to a social sciences related program, a lot of them did very poorly on the math section and they were still able to get in. And a lot of the times they just had to during their interview, explain and justify what happened there. And if they are able to, if they were able to show that they were good in statistics specifically, and maybe not in algebra or other related mat mathematical concepts, but statistics they were, you know, good enough at, then usually they would be fine because research-wise, they would need to conduct statistical tests. That's, that's the skill set you're it. using. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So if they were able to show kind of a difference between the mathematical score that they got in the GRE 
and their actual skill set in statistics, or at least in, in a lot of cases nowadays, their ability to use statistical software. 100%. Then they were able to still get through with that lower well, let me section give you, score. Well, let me give you an example, because when I did the GRE, um, I scored, I think, in the 97th or 98th percentile for the uh, essay and you know, language section. <laughs> no, but let me tell you. For the math section, I scored in the 72nd percentile. And that was fine with me because I knew for a fact that applying for a literary studies PhD, they were not going to look at my my math at no, all. Yeah. Right? I'm not going to use trigonometry or look at parabolas for, uh, for an English PhD. But I would argue that to some extent you don't use that in um, – Law school either. I don't know. Maybe maybe we're about to have a terrible yeah, <laughs> awakening. <laughs> well, um, I feel like maybe if for the business-related mm-hmm. aspects, if you decide I am going to start a law firm on my own. Yes. But even then, I feel like that would more be financial. And that's still different than theoretical mathematics, which I feel like they seem to cover in the GRE if they're going algebra and trigonometry. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. What's really interesting, too, and I think we can kind of use this point as a good segue into talking just about Canada only, is the regardless, a lot of these standardized tests now are um, conducted digitally in some kind of way. So whether that's on a tablet in person or even remote, I believe the LSAT is still offered remote as yes. of 2023. Um, I think that's a remnant of the pandemic, but who knows you know, whether or not that's going to be modified in some kind of way. One element, too, and I, and I only learned this today, is... Obviously, the LSAT is English-oriented. Obviously, the overwhelming majority of test takers, um, those tests will be taken in English. What I didn't know was that with the exception of Spanish being offered once per year um, and only to test takers in Puerto Rico, it is entirely in English. It is only in English outside of that. And I find that to be, one, to some extent, it does make sense, right? Because you're kind of working with a lot of um, schooling and readings and everything like that being in English. But I think a lot about for folks who aren't native speakers, for folks who have English as a second language, how much of an added pressure and difficulty it is to do these kinds of logic games and reading comprehension in you know, like 20, 25 minutes. Like I think that's a great deal of um, difficulty. Um, For sure. And to kind of play off of that language kind of um, aspect of the LSAT, in in Canada, actually, the LSAT is not required for all Canadian common law programs. And it's specifically because of the fact that it's only offered in English. And that's to take into consideration our Francophone populations. And so because there is no French version, any school that is either catering to some francophone population whether it be a minority or a majority if you're looking at quebec is typically going to make the lsat optional so examples of that would be the university of ottawa which is actually a bilingual university but i think the main factor being that it's right at the border with quebec and so oftentimes there are going to be quebec residents that are going to attend the university and so because of that for these students even if they speak English, which is actually not a requirement for them to attend the University of Ottawa, but let's say they also speak English, French would typically still be their first language. And so it's possible that they would struggle considering that it's testing very 
heavily on skills that require a strong and kind of fundamental grasp of the language. Not just vocabulary, but also grammar and syntax, yes. right? The LSAT is purposely syntactically um, obfuscating. It's purposely very difficult, even for fluent and or native speakers of English. Exactly. And so that's why you see it there. You see it also at the University of Moncton. So in New Brunswick, there are a lot of Francophones. And then, of course, all French universities in Quebec. But so what's interesting here is that this is not only a requirement for universities that are providing a degree for the civil law system. It's also for the common law system. So these students could attend one of these universities not complete the LSAT, and then go on to practice in, in the rest of Canada. And so far, granted, again, this is not based on empirical studies, but I haven't seen anything that shows that they underperform as lawyers in comparison to individuals that are coming from universities that require the LSAT. And so that could also serve as an argument to remove the LSAT because there's obviously something that it's not testing, to kind of determine someone's ability to become a good lawyer. To be frank, I think in North America, we often don't think about how in graduate and professional schooling, how um, awfully uncreative sometimes monolingual systems can be, right? And so Canada is this wonderful example because in so many um, scenarios, in so many cases, we do have to consider bilingualism as a... Um, as an important facet when designing curricula, when designing admissions processes, you know, things of that nature. And so I'm glad you shared that point, right? The fact that there are folks who uh, do not take the LSAT, who then enter the common law system, who practice elsewhere. And, you know, there, has, there haven't been any significant studies that have made the news about people perform, underperforming, right? Exactly. And of course, just because a lot of our conversation today focused, of course, on, on U.S. trends. But it's pretty common knowledge and pretty consistent that usually if the American Bar Association makes a decision, let's say with regards to removing the LSAT, usually the Canadian Bar Association will follow. It, of course, it's not a guarantee, but there's typically consistency with how both of them make their decisions. And I think it's also just because of of course, the closeness of the countries, but also the fact that a lot of Canadians potentially want to study in the U.S., there might be the opposite. So it's good to have a general agreement and consensus on what is required. Yes, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, after this conversation, I do think that because of the pandemic, because of the means by which people take the LSAT now, right, which can be either on the tablet or remote, um, and because of this issue of language and of the possible inherent biases that come with standardized testing, I think to some extent in the coming years, we're going to see this conversation and this argument about whether or not the LSAT should be uh, an obligatory element of the application process. Um, I think those conversations are going to continue to happen. Um, I, I don't think it's a surprise at all that it was such a big conversation topic this year. I think that's only going to be indicative of more debates to come. I definitely agree. And we see it in other fields, of course, like just in, in the medical field, for example. There's been the same types of conversations with regards to the MCAT. And that's why, for example, they introduced recently, right, the CASPER, which is that personality 
testing. It's only been introduced as a supplement right now, but there is that idea of kind of playing around with different types of tests and to see which ones stick or which ones are the most predictive and can potentially help determine who's going to be not only successful in the actual academic program portion, but also successful in the career. Because there is that, I I also find kind of overarching discussion about whether just succeeding in law school or succeeding in medical school is sufficient. Because oftentimes you have to interact with clients and with other individuals. And that's not something that you teach typically through academia. Yes. I mean, you know, like I'm sure the logic games of which order you would put racehorses into, that's going to be a really, really (laughs) um, demonstrative and critical piece of experience piece of skill exactly. exactly that's how i learned how to treat people exactly customer service 101 which how to organize horses <laughs> a b c d and uh, e and f i mean with with that let's let's uh end our episode thank you so much for listening to beyond the briefcase next week we are going to be bringing another guest speaker We are going to be speaking to Aaron Baer, co-founder of 4L Academy. And we're going to be talking all things legal tech, remote work, um, as well as student mentoring. Please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends if you enjoyed this. Check out our social media. Check out our Instagram. At Beyond the Briefcase Podcast. To keep in touch as well as up to date on all of our episodes. Also, via Instagram, we would love to hear your thoughts on this topic. What is your position in this debate? Um, what kinds of conversations have you and your colleagues been having on the, ha- having on the subject matter? Uh, we would love for you to share that in the comments. I think that would be a really great place to start having a larger conversation. Thank you so much to Adam, our technical producer. And of course, thank you listeners. I've been Meg. I've been Sarah. Bye. <laughs>